please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is Sex is Weird for Everyone with Garlavanti, Amy Baird, Benjamin Law, Clementine Ford and Quinn Eads. Hello, welcome to Sex is Weird for Everyone. Isn't it? Before we start, I'd just like to acknowledge the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation as the traditional custodians of the land that we're gathered on today. Their sovereignty over this country was never ceded, and they continue to seek justice for the crimes committed against them, both historical and present. Uh, and I want to acknowledge that justice-seeking and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. So, how weird is sex? <laughs> We're going to explore that today uh, with the likes of these fabulous humans here. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading their bios because you can do that in the fine program. I'm just going to introduce Ben Law, Quinn Eads. I will introduce myself, which I failed to do in my first panel. But first, Amy Baird and Clementine Ford. My name's Gallivanting. Apparently that matters. Uh, the host, the uh, identity of the host matters. Uh, so I'm a sex worker, a writer, um, a sex educator, and an advocate for the human rights of sex workers. Um, I, I suppose that's what positions me to, uh, to, to facilitate a discussion about sex. I have immersed myself in sex and sexuality professionally for uh, upwards of 15 years. And uh, yesterday, I was paid $350 to jerk off a man with sandpaper. So I truly know he loved it. Don't feel bad for him. It's fine. Uh, so I feel that I can facilitate a conversation about how fucking weird sex is. I wore gloves. It's okay. So I'd like to start with the obvious question. How weird is sex? Go. It's not like a conch. It's not. Um, well, okay. So um, I, to get into the weirdness of sex, I probably have to talk about my weird relationship to sex because I actually write a sex and relationships advice column with my mother. <laughs> and she is in the front row now uh, recording this whole thing like uh-huh. a spy. She's the worst spy. She's wearing a red hat. She's very conspicuous. <laughs> and as much as that's weird, it's actually quite gratifying and humbling that um, anonymous people will often trust you with very, very intimate kind of things that they're wrestling with, right? And so um, the the... The questions that we get put to us, um, which are then adjusted to kind of be gender-neutral questions, which I think is really important, um, because I think a lot of the problems at the heart of it are often human problems. I mean, as much as we need to acknowledge very specific differences with sexuality and gender and get into the specifics as well, I think a lot of the emotional questions are often the same, the emotional yearnings that come to sex and relationships. Um, But in terms of the questions we get, um, it's often about like, the etiquette of dildo use with, um, you know, flatmates, um, the kind of, like, responsibilities between sexual responsibilities and familial responsibilities. I think we had something involving an eggplant and olive oil at one stage. Um, but, you know, it, it's as much as it's, you know, focused on sex, I actually think those kinds of conversations um, are really human conversations we should all be having. And so on that topic of, of having really intimate conversations with people about sex, I mean, that, that's what you do for a job. 
and it, and I maybe you can introduce that work a little bit so that we can position uh, your relationship to those deep chats. Sure. So actually, as a I'm a neuropsychologist, so I see people who have had a brain injury or have suspected a brain injury or a brain disease like dementia. And I don't typically ask them about their sex life, but my PhD many moons ago, about 20 years ago, was on the topic of changes in sex drive that can occur after you have brain surgery for epilepsy. So I spent four years on that topic, and during that time I interviewed about 70 people who'd had brain surgery for epilepsy about their sex drive and, and their sex life. Mm-hmm. So, and they were wrapped to talk about it because a lot of them had quite dramatic changes in their sex drive after that surgery and they hadn't been able to, to, to really discuss it with their neurosurgeon or they hadn't felt comfortable to. Their partners had come in and spoken to my supervisor at the time and said, you have to give us an operation because we can't keep up with them now. They've just got this dramatic increase in their sex drive. So when I, I was initially quite nervous, I was a student, I was you know, young, and um, when I realised that they were so happy to discuss it, all my nerves drifted away and it was, yeah, it wasn't, it was weird for them perhaps to have the opportunity to discuss it with someone so openly. But I guess the other thing I wanted to say is humans are weird because compared with other mammals, we do have a sex life, a sex life that is strange in that we have sex at any time for fun. We don't do it at particular times just to reproduce. Um, And animals are, you know, sort of more hormone-based do it at particular times with many people. We often stick with one partner for a long time. And so we are unusual in that we're part of the mammalian kingdom, but as humans we do have a weird sex life. Yeah. Which which your book really positions in in the brain, and I think we have uh, we we really conceive of ourselves as as sexual bodies, right? Uh, and so you locate a lot of those things in spaces that we don't traditionally think of as as the, the sex organ. Yeah, true. Mm. But I mean, our brains control everything. So yeah, they do control our sex drives and life. Um, so so um, I like this um, this thread of of having weird conversations and and intimate and human conversations about sex. And so I want to throw this to the parents on the panel. Uh, <laughs> that's coming for you, or maybe it's already been. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, Quinn, you and I have talked about this uh, a bit in terms of what you have written uh, and and what things you have exposed of your own sexuality and how you feel about the potential of your children coming across that at some point. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, it's a tricky one, that one. And uh, sex is weird and it makes us all kind of, people want to giggle and laugh a lot. And for me, talking about sex is incredibly important because it's um, one of those realms in our lives where the more we don't talk about it, the harder it is actually to find any kind of sexual practice that we enjoy or to talk about what's hard about it with others. But the thing for me as a trans queer person in a, employed by a university is that as soon as I start talking, and I'm a member of the kink community as well, as soon as I start talking about sex, I feel incredibly vulnerable. Um, I feel very worried that my, there's a part of my brain that thinks my children are going to be taken away, um, that I'm going to have trouble in my job, that I'll carry this kind of stain with me. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think about the kind, there, are, there are some kinds of sex that it's okay to talk about and have a giggle um, and then there are many other kinds of sex that there is an absolute taboo around even mentioning. And so the idea of me being a parent who also does kink and BDSM and saying that out loud in a public panel um, as a parent is incredi- makes me incredibly vulnerable but I also refuse not to because as long as I perpetuate that cycle of it's not okay to speak about that, it's not a part of human sexuality, then um, it, could, it just carries on. So I don't sit my children down and go, gee, I just had a great flogging last night. <laughs> I'm not doing that with them. Um, but I... And in fact, my 11-year-old's just like, oh, my God, puberty. I, I, no, I just don't want it. I don't, you know, he doesn't want to look at anyone kissing. He's just like, just go get away from me. So we don't have a lot of conversations about sex. But I was lucky enough to grow up with lesbians who talked with, about sex with me all the time. Um, and what that meant was that I never didn't know what sex was. <laughs> I never didn't know what periods were. 
I didn't think I was going to die when I bled for the first time, like so many girls do. Um, and so I see a, a lot of value of, of around being some openness. You've got to have boundaries, but openness with kids around that is really important. Um, I feel that I similarly grew up with a lot of um, knowledge around the reproductive side of sex in the body. You know, I remember I'm the youngest of three children and I remember being probably roughly four or five years old, I think, and my mum sat us all down one night with this, like, big butcher paper and drew, like, diagrams of how it all worked. And But it was all, bio, it was all like, reproductive rather than there wasn't really a lot of talk about pleasure or anything like that. So I was also a child that loved seeing people kissing on TV, you know, because <laughs> it made me feel pretty good. Um, and I used to do this... You know, my parents didn't really keep a very close eye on us when we were kids and because I was, again, the youngest of three. Like, I was watching movies that definitely were not rated for my age group. Um, and I had a lot of sexual fantasies as a kid, you know, without really understanding what any of it meant, you know. So I remember one of the, the games that I loved to play with myself was we had this old typewriter and I'd go into the, the room where the typewriter was. And, again, I was probably... Judging based on which house we were in at the time, I know I can't have been older than eight. I think it was about six or seven. And I would type notes to myself. I'd play two roles, the boss and the secretary. <laughs> Classic. Wow. And I would type notes to myself as the boss and then receive them as the secretary. And I would be like, dear Miss Miller or something like that. The other thing as well was that the only... I, when I grew up, I wanted to be a secretary because all the movies that I watched... Women were secretaries, but the, it was the women who were secretaries were the ones who were single and they got to go out and they went on dates and things like that. Was That was why I thought being a secretary like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl would be like the best job ever. So I would type these notes to myself, Dear Miss Miller, I'm coming round to your house tonight to fuck you. Love from your boss. <laughs> and then I would like, I'd get, I'd be so excited as I was typing it out and then I would pull it out and I would read it and I'd feel this sort of like frisson all over my body and then I would tear it up into tiny, tiny little pieces making sure I tore through every single word because I was so deeply afraid and ashamed of the thought that my parents or someone would find it and that they would know that I was like this, you know, dirty pervert. Um, <laughs> it's what I thought in my head. Um, so I didn't like, you know, then I discovered masturbation when I was 12 and felt all of this incredible shame and self-loathing about it that this in fact I tell I tell the story in my first book that um I'm also a big hypochondriac and it was a lot worse when I was a kid and I remember discovering masturbation or discovering the outcome of <laughs> masturbation because I sort of was doing it for a while before anything really happened um and I used to like to rub myself against the bath you know so I'd hover on the bath and like basically grind on the bath and then one day, like, it was just getting a bit steamy <laughs> and, you know, suddenly I felt like this, this explosion happened, you know, I had obviously was having my first orgasm and I couldn't really enjoy it because as it started happening, I leapt back from the bath and turned to stare at it accusingly <laughs> because I thought, you know, deep shame about masturbation and also hypochondriac, I thought that I was having a stroke. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, fuck, I've gone too far. And then after that, of course, you know, then I was like making all these bargains with God or the universe or whoever. I didn't, didn't I sort of grew up with a religious upbringing, but not, it was more like a knowledge-based religious upbringing where I knew the stories, but we weren't a religious family. And so I pray to God all the time, um, I'll stop, I promise I'll stop. That, that time was definitely the last time. <laughs> and it took me probably, I mean, it, it feels in memory like maybe two years, but two years in child years could be like six months, you know. It took me, it felt like a while to get over this sense of shame that I had about, you know, giving myself pleasure. Meanwhile, Clementine, I was given a book at nine uh, from the feminist bookshop in Leichhardt, uh, and which was a yeah, it was a masturbation workbook. <laughs> and, uh, That's you, that you had to write like little essays about I had your to experiences. Write, you know, when I do blah, I feel like that. There were like line drawings for all the different things to try, and I'm quite a high achiever. I like to do well at everything I do. <laughs> So I was like, studiously, yes, I've done that. I feel like this. 
But, um, but then I felt I was failing at orgasming because I, I never seemed to have quite the feelings that the book was saying I should have and they kind of plagued me till my early 20s till I really felt like I'd had the kind of orgasm I was meant to be having. And um, so, I, yeah, too much knowledge, not enough. Mm. And, uh, Who was marking them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope nobody, but I wish I still had it. I uh, really wish you still had it. <laughs> I really wish all people had access to that as children I feel like possibly I mean I don't I don't know if I can say our generation because I'm not really sure about the ages of the people I'm sitting with but uh there we all know now that that shame is a terrible plague Uh, and and the children that we can influence um hopefully won't experience that at all um and and I a, a child that I'm close with at the moment is a really furious masturbator and she has just turned three and she has like a whole bunch of rituals around it and everybody knows what they are and what's happening now and she talks about it and 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 is engaged on it and knows that you know that it's a private experience uh but that it's not a shameful experience and I just I I I feel so much as as she like she'll come out of her bedroom with like flushed cheeks and it's the it is the sweetest thing that I've ever witnessed and I'm so happy that she has that that she can just take that joy in her own body and not feel anything funny about it at all yeah it's I'm really glad that we've gone into wanking because I had a whole bunch of questions about wanking yeah this is really good so writing as wanking autoerotic act please do tell me about it Ben um I don't know about anyone else who's a freelance writer, but like so often the things that you need to prevent yourself from doing during the day to stay focused <laughs> is like, oh, like because writing is is um, a kind of profession where there's no kind of um, immediate return, right? And so you want to do things that where, where there are. And for me, it's this kind of constant battle between um, not doing all the housework. Like you know you're in a freelance house freelance writer's house when all the housework is done and they're on deadline because they're like, if I do the laundry, there's an immediate return, I can see all of that. And the other thing is just trying not to log on to Pornhub, like constantly, and just seeing, has something updated in that particular genre today? In so, the last 12 minutes? So, so there is a literal relationship between writing and, and masturbation. And then I guess there's the kind of artistic relationship, which is... You're just trying so hard with every sentence for it not to be... I mean, because, like, we're talking in a masturbation-positive way, obviously, but you don't necessarily want your writing to be completely masturbatory and onanistic, which is... Why do we call it that, though? Why do we call it a... You know, why do we say wanker as a derogatory term and, mas, you know, masturbatory as a kind of... You know the writing I'm talking about. It's got like kind of got no point and no stakes. You know, we kind of refer to that as pretentious wank. Well, it could be that, you know, some wanking is just – some wanking can be very, very good and others it's just you're just getting the job done. <laughs> I, I like Cleaning the, the pipes. The, the, first, the first time I heard this – this is you, I think, who – certainly I heard it from first, but you um, coined the great term procrastination. Yes. <laughs> Which I make sure do, you're not procrastinating at, at least five or six times a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no shame about masturbation, but procrastinating, I'm like, I really should be doing something else. <laughs> I was just going to say, one of the people in my book that I interviewed, an American researcher, she's actually doing research on how orgasms can make you more productive in your work life. She's saying it's hard to get research funding just to study orgasm for pleasure, but if you're looking at there's a health positive, there's a productive work outcome. So if your boss is, like, offering, like, extracurricular activities or bonding exercises, (laughs) sleeping pods, something more simpler they could be offering, a masturbatorium closet. But I'm I'm bummed that the the Protestant work ethic is like somehow it like that that all of our all of our discussion around orgasm needs to be productive in that way. You know, we kind of we go back to these ideas of sex as procreative as a as as its first priority. Yeah. Anybody else want to t- take away? I feel I, I just like I know that you have a um, I know that Quinn has a, a propensity for um, French feminism, and I feel <laughs> I feel like the 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 the, the writing as autoerotic uh, com- comes into that that work, and I wonder if that plays in. And and, and 
particularly in, in the really personal, very re revelatory work that you've done? Yeah, uh, I think that writing my first book, which is called All the Beginnings, A Queer Autobiography of the Body, um, changed me, changed my sexuality, uh, helped me work out I was trans. Um, and I remember, so it took me about three years to write and I, I realised about two years in that I had managed to not write a single thing about sex mm -hmm. uh, and that I couldn't possibly publish a book called A Queer Autobiography of the Body without having at least some sex content. And that was because I'd had uh, some really serious traumas based around sex as a young person, sort of from 12 to 22 or so. Uh, and then I was told by a counsellor that I, the way I did sex was wrong, that I was asking someone else to uh, self-harm for me, um, that it was domestic violence. Uh, and this was uh, safe, consensual, negotiated sexual relations that I was having with people um, and so I took that perspective on and agreed with her um, and she told me I had to have non-penetrative sex from that point on uh, and so I embarked on a mission of having <laughs> non-penetrative, um, what we might call vanilla sex, I guess. Sounds and like bed rest. Yeah. It's like the same kind of damning uh, yeah. prescription. Well, I remember the first time I came having that kind of sex and I sobbed like my fucking soul was being torn out of my body. I felt like I was falling into a chasm. Um, and I think that was the feeling of taking on someone else's perspective about my body and my desires wholesale um, because I was so desperate for some kind of fix for the trauma that I was in and continued to be in. So then I wrote this book and I, um, I wrote myself back to kink. I wrote myself back to the knowledge that I'd had as a 20-something-year-old and when I was reading uh, Patrick Caulifier and um, going, I actually, I had this knowledge, this is okay for me, um, this is what I want to do. And so it doesn't matter what kind of sex I needed to come back to, I needed to come back to my own desire and stay with that rather than um, following a particular ideology that said the way I did sex was wrong. Um, and there's a lot of stuff, we all know there's a lot of stuff in the world that tells us the way we do sex is wrong. Um, and so writing for me fundamentally changed how I lived. Um, and, I, yeah, I have the best orgasms I've ever had in my life now and I'm 45. So, you know, I wish I could have told the nine-year-old me that thought she was failing at the masturbation <laughs> book that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> So, so the T word came up uh, in what you just spoke about and I, I want to go into that a little bit um, because I feel like we now have s such greater language around, around trauma um, and, and, and so much more understanding of that as, as a physical experience and as, a, as an emotional experience or a, a spiritual one. Um, and, and I wonder what that has done to sex, to our experience of sex. Uh, was sex better before we had this language of trauma and triggers, before we talked about these things in so much, uh, such in-depth language? Or are we better for it sexually, for having that, that knowledge and, and, and being informed by those things? Binary. Better or worse? I mean, the, the kind of instinctive generalisation I want to make is sex is always better when there's good communication, yeah. right? And to discuss anything, but especially something as important and as serious as trauma takes a lot of vulnerability and takes a lot of trust and takes really good communication skills on both parties to be able to to communicate what you've been through or what you've experienced, but also to receive that information and to process it in good faith and to know what what might be how we might want to proceed together and that's like a process right and i think as much as um you know discussing what's in our past uh is is kind of like one example of a spectrum of conversations that we might be engaging with coming into sex during sex after sex all that sort of stuff that conversation should be happening throughout for all of us in terms of like what we need where that need comes from that's a legitimate need. Thank you for sharing. You know, those sorts of things I think are important in, in all of this. So the more that we have those frank conversations without this kind of um, filter of, of shame, which so much like I only really feel like we are coming out of this 
bug of, you know, like when you were saying, Clementine, that you didn't grow up in a religious household, I didn't either, but I went to a very religious school and so much of the framing of sexual, like I just look back on our sex ed classes and I'm like, whoa, that was deeply inappropriate. You know, the way that sex ed was basically, this is how reproduction works and let's look at some diseased genitals now. <laughs> like that was basically all we got. And as a, a young closeted kid, with no reference point, dial-up internet was only coming in at the end of high school. Um, as I write in the introduction to Growing Up Queer in Australia, this anthology we just put out, of which Quinn is one of the narrators for the audiobook. Um, but, like, my main reference point for a really long time was the H volume of Encyclopedia Britannica, like homosexuality. And, and the other one was a book that a lot of parents gave their kids in good faith, like of Gen X and Gen Y kids, called Everything a Teenage either girl or boy, should know. And it was written by this, um, like, dusty, crusty male paediatrician. Uh, you know, no, no offence, I'm sure some of them are great. But it, when it came to – there was a whole chapter called Unnatural Sex Acts – and it was just about masturbation and homosexuality. And that was the chat. And that's like the resource that I had. I am grateful for, however, Sex with Sophie Lee and Sex Life with Toddy Goldsmith, two shows that I think came under fire in Senate estimates. Like, how are these shows being broadcast <laughs> in Australia? But were really valuable because, you know, I had really, really um, uh, liberal um, mother. Uh, and we just, you know, we'd watch like every, anything on SBS and sex life was actually something that I'm sure parents push their children away from. Whereas my mom was like, Oh my gosh, kids, look at this. This is so interesting. And so that was a really, uh, so I'm grateful for that kind of education because within those TV shows, and I actually think like, I think Australian TV used to be edgier in a way because I don't think those TV shows would get made nowadays. Um, but I, within those kind of conversations were conversations about sexuality, about trauma, about negotiation, about communication that I thought were really valuable. So I, I was just going to say that um, I've been, you know, it's weird when you sort of think that like it makes you lucky, but I've been really lucky not to have kind of absorbed a lot of sexual trauma at all. You know, I've had really nice partners, even if it's just like a one-night thing or whatever, like I've just been lucky to have avoided some of the sort of horrible stories that I hear from so many other people. But I still think that there's just so many things that kind of layer shame on top of shame about, you know, whether what's your, it's what your body looks like, what your body feels like, um, how you think you're expected to perform. You know, it's, it's I, I was saying to um, Quinn and Ben outside before that I'm at 38 now finally in a place in my mind where I feel so much better about myself generally and certainly so much more confident about what I want sexually. But I still have all of this like residual fear and shame about having given birth to a child and how that kind of impacts what my body feels like to other people, um, particularly because I separated from my partner at the start of the year and so when you're kind of opening yourself up to new partners as well, I think that you're sort of putting yourself in really vulnerable positions. And, again, been very fortunate that haven't had a bad experience, but I'm still, I'm still anticipating that or there's still all this kind of like internal wrestle with, well, my body's changed and therefore my body's flawed. And if my body's flawed, it means that I'm substandard for this person and that they're going to judge me negatively on it. And... That's probably my biggest mental barrier when it comes to sex at the moment is and sex and pleasure at the moment is just getting outside of my head on that stuff. And it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, of course, like your bodies change, people's bodies change all the time, whether or not they have birthed a baby or not. Or, you know, why don't you think about it in feel feel privileged about it or feel, you know, grateful for it or look at your body. I hate those memes where it's like, look at your body and, you know, consider, consider that to be your, like, your war marks. You know, this is, you birthed a baby. It's beautiful and, you know, it's incredible and this is what happened because you, did, you went through this amazing thing. You're the earth I, mother. Yeah, I can think I did grow a human inside me for nine months and I did birth that human and I can feel those tears coming. It's probably a lot of people, I don't know, Quinn, if you feel the same way, but when you start to go into that 
maybe that's where the trauma is. It's in it's in the birth. It's traumatic. I was going to talk um, about that. But you can say all of that and say that this is a really amazing, magical, positive, powerful thing that you've done and isn't isn't your body incredible? And you can also think, I'm really worried that partners are going to think my vagina is too loose. You know? Yeah. It's absurd, but it's there. And also your body has been you used for a very, very different purpose and try, to try to transition from that one in which you're growing and birthing something uh, to this other really... Uh, it, 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 equally embodied but but in a very different way and with a very different intention kind of space that's that's a huge process and and I feel like it takes lots of people 10 years to make to make that journey well yeah and then also that transition after birth from your body being touched all the time by something in a non-sexual way you know the touch fatigue that you get if you if you are breastfeeding or if you choose to breastfeed and then trying to figure out your way back to yourself as a sexual creature and you know balancing those those things is I remember when I um yeah I remember when I got turned on from breastfeeding and um nobody ever ever talks about it and uh it just happened one night I was lying down with my first baby and he was feeding and then suddenly I felt turned on and then I felt like a monster and I sat myself up in bed and put some pillows and, like, shook myself awake and and then fed him in this very, like, I don't know, matronly kind of upright, firm way. We're just having a feed. And, uh, <laughs> that's all that's going on. And I uh, discovered that every time if I just wanted to pop him on and go back to sleep, I was going to feel turned on and felt like absolutely so much shame about it and then I read um some fabulous midwife's book and I can't remember her name right now but she Ina May Gaskin yes mm-hmm. Ina May Gaskin who just went you're a mammal this is what's supposed to happen <laughs> open to your baby feel the sexuality flowing like she just had this beautiful kind of thing about it and that was all I needed was to read that and go oh other people oh that's okay right that's the thing that's come from really shit kind of medical western ideas about women's bodies and you know what we're allowed to do with our babies yeah and and the chemistry of uh of of those um those hormones that are being released during breastfeeding which i feel like is you know that's kind of your area of expertise amy and i i'm wondering uh if you can talk about because the trauma that your work deals with is is very different to what we've just been talking about um and and i wonder how if you can reflect a little bit on how that kind of capital t trauma um manifests for um for the people that you studied Well, I think, yeah, the trauma that I deal with as a neuropsychologist is brain trauma, so more the physical injury or disease in the brain. And sex has been kind of excluded from that whole discussion. Like when people do have a traumatic brain injury or a brain disease, often sex is not on their high priority of things to talk about or think about because there's a lot of other things going wrong. You know, sometimes they can't move properly, they can't speak properly, their memory's not working. But, I mean, as we've discussed, sex is such a fundamental part of our lives that it's a shame that it's not discussed more in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the trauma that I deal with is more brain trauma, but people who have brain injuries or brain diseases also can go through that emotional or, you know, sexual trauma in the past. It's all kind of one package, so to speak. But I think the conversation and part of the reason that I wanted to write my book was to open up that conversation for people who have brain conditions to show that, yeah, there are people who have had quite dramatic changes in their sex drive and behaviour in the context of this and it's okay to talk about it and, you know, read about it and feel like, yeah, well, now my partner can know that this might happen and this is why it's happened and, yeah, there's a, you know, genuine sort of biological, physical reason within the brain, certain parts that's more likely to influence your sex life. So. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, there's a disability rights question here as well for people who have acquired brain injury um, and, and, and have disability related to that. Um, the discussion around their rights as sexual beings really, really comes up. comes into play in dementia too, like people with dementia in aged care facilities. There's this really tricky balance of their right for sexual expression and behaviour in the aged care facility, but also 
protecting them, they're vulnerable people. So we don't want sexual assaults happening willy-nilly in aged care facilities, you know, how they can give consent to have sex and their capacity to give consent for sex when they have dementia. It's a really complicated issue. So balancing sexual rights and expression with vulnerability and protection, it's, yeah, in, in any kind of disability or, or brain condition, I think. Yeah. This actually comes up a lot in um, in the sex work discussion, um, and there's some conversations happening at the moment about sex work and the national national disability insurance scheme, um, and whether um, right whether sex work whether sex work services could be funded um, as as a part of providing um, a good life for uh, for a person with a disability. And it, it's you know there's a, that one's a little bit double edged because um, for the for sex worker rights movements often that sort of virtuous whore who will provide a service to a person with disability um, gets kind of trotted out as this uh, as this um, respectability politics kind of issue um, so I'm both uh, really I really connect with that as a sex worker uh, about that that service that we provide that intimate care that we provide but I also don't want that to become the only acceptable form of sex work because it is so quote-unquote virtuous well and there's something infantilizing in it as well which um, you know we've sadly lost her but Stella Young used to talk about that too that that's and I'm just repeating what she said because obviously I can't speak to this directly, but for her the complication was there's an ableism in assuming that that's the only kind of sex that people with disabilities would be able to have. And when you when you couple that with the virtuous whore narrative, you know, that then this becomes care work. So there's something that's that she found infantilising and stripped disabled people of their sexual agency within that. I think there's something infantilising too about taking the rights of people with dementia to have sex away. Like, oh, they can't, they've, you know, they're just kind of reduced to a kid because they've got this severe dementia. They can't think, they, they shouldn't be having sex, they can't consent to sex. But actually pleasure and your sex life remains, as you grow older, it remains in the face of a brain injury or a disease and, and really there needs to be more work around letting that survive in, in aged care. So I want to come to um, th- th- this sort of idea has only come across my sort of uh, brainwaves in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it, it comes from um, Annie Sprinkle, who's a porn performer um, and gen- artist and general amazing prostitute. Um, she, 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 she's speaking about something that she calls the new sex panic. Um, and and her, that comes from her history and experience um, during the AIDS crisis and, and the sex panic that kind of took place around that and the fear um, of, of having any sex in the gay, gay male community. Um, and and she kind of uh, she she speaks about me too and consent and that sort of thing as this new sex panic um, as this space where we are uh, we become because of the dialogue around those things around sexual assault consent me too etc um, we've become really paralyzed uh, in a in fear around. Um, uh, around being called out or around, you know, like that the call out is, is the, is, I guess, uh, comparable to, um, transmission of HIV, for example. Um, and so it's frozen us in a lot of ways around sexuality. It, it, it's made it so that we have to find all of these, all these ways around our sexual desires or, or to repress them or to, um, you know, to take extra, extra, extra steps, uh, around consent that perhaps, uh, make some, make sex joyless for us. Um, so I, I wanted to put that idea out yeah. there and see where see if that plants anything. That's fascinating because I'd love to do more more reading around that. But I, I also wonder, and this is me thinking out aloud. Um, I wonder whether our anxieties about sex and sexuality um, have kind of uh, the, the the idea that they've become more complicated has been overstated with with the advent of Me Too. Because first of all, I think just as many people are having great consensual sex as ever. You know what I mean? Um, and on the other hand, I feel like sometimes this argument is prosecuted in a way that adds fire to the fuel of the argument that Me Too has made sex more complicated. 
And in a way, I'm not sure enthusiasm and consent are that complicated because, you know, like to check in with a sexual partner, to see if they're enjoying it, to like have community, does that feel good? Like to turn that kind of conversation, like that doesn't need to be a clinical conversation, that can be a sexy conversation it's as well. It's that, worrying that people, for them that is like, whoa, too much red tape. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of sex are you having that you're not communicating? I feel like a lot of people who are allergic to that idea of like checking in think of it as like, does this feel good at this point in time? Does this feel good now? Well, may this, I put my hand sti- on? Yes, may do you still consent to this? Like it's not it's and, not and, and that I think transactional. That there's, there's some there's some people I think who would fall into the camp of like, well, fuck that. Why should I have to check in with my partner, you know? Because they've they've got a particular idea of what sex is and what sex looks like. So maybe that's um when I use the word dominating, I don't mean in a in a you know one that in a, in a way I don't mean in a way that that actually relies on communication. I mean actually that I'm just going to come in and fuck you and do whatever I want. Um, you know, one of the stories uh, I feel it feels. I mean, we're at a writers' festival, so I'm allowed to say in my book. One of the stories that I wrote about in my second book was um, was in a chapter about rape and consent, and it was about this British footballer called Ched uh, Ched, Ched Evans, who had been convicted sort of similar situation to Luke Lazarus here. He'd been convicted of raping a woman who was far too drunk to consent in a hotel room. She later brought charges against him and he did serve 11 months of the sentence and then when he came out of prison, he appealed that sentence and his conviction was overturned. Boom, got a million dollar a year, million pound a year job with a football team again. Um, But the argument that he used in his appeal and in his original trial was that, so he'd led himself into the room that he'd booked for and paid for and given to a friend of his. The friend had taken this incredibly intoxicated woman back to the hotel room with him and then Chet Evans had led himself into the hotel room to join them, um, to join them. And they both maintained the whole time she consented to it, she consented, she consented. And yet he admitted in trial that he hadn't exchanged a single word with her. So to me, I think that so there's that that one camp of people who think, well, the fact that she's there and she's not clawing my eyes out means that she's consented and I can do whatever I want. And then there's this other group of people who I think resist, you know, the, the urge or resist the instruction to check in with your partner because they feel embarrassed about, they feel shame about like conversing about sex they think that they're going to say it wrong or they get that cringe feeling that like oh i feel awkward and exposed and really naked what if they say actually change it up <laughs> they, just, they just don't know they're, they're not practiced at yeah it's, it might not even be that that but they're not practiced at sex talk you yeah. know so it makes them feel really vulnerable and I'm, i don't think that that's an excuse i'm just saying that the former can be dealt with by actually addressing gender inequality and consent and education and enthusiasm. And the latter can be addressed by dealing with shame around sex and making it, you know, breaking down those barriers about and that insecurity that so many people have about, you know, they all want to be fucking but they don't want to talk about it. Jess Jess Hill, who's also at at this festival, um, talks a a lot in her book about um, the transition between from shame to violence, you know, and when we can't, uh, when when shame prevents us from articulating whatever it is, the, the way that that whatever it is comes out becomes warped or, you know, uh, um, in some way really problematic. Um, there's another point that you brought up that I thought was really interesting. Like there was something about like the pathology of sex, like of, of I forget what the exact quote was, but it does make me think that, um, you know, my generation, which is the older end of millennials, like sex has, especially for anyone who is same sex attracted, but especially like gay, gay and queer men, like sex was equated to death. You know, it was it was the environment where our puberty coincided with the Grim Reaper ad campaign and what that has kind of done to, I mean, outside of the the horrific kind of war that was that was HIV AIDS in this in this country and beyond. Um, beyond that, I, I also do wonder about the kind of like lasting psychological effects where anything that is not heterosexual missionary sex is kind of something that will that will potentially be fatal for you uh, and what it is to kind of live with that pathologised version of sex? 
And maybe also, you know, there's there's a fatality in a call out, you know. So anything that isn't um, is is doesn't fall within consent, also being, uh, you know, fatal to your reputation, a la Louis C.K. An American guy, David Lay, wrote a book about um, sex addiction. Yeah, and he was uh, I spoke to him, and he was saying it's called the myth of sex addiction. Sorry, and he was saying that um, in the U.S. Sex addiction is often um, categorised as those non-vanilla sex that's included in any sex addiction and that grew. Um, porn. The concept of porn and sex addiction arose around that time of AIDS and it, it's driven a lot by the church, by politics. The US is like the hotspot for porn addiction treatment centres and there's this whole um, huge money-making scheme around it. So it's an interesting kind of mix of let's categorise all of that as addiction. Let's deal with it. The church kind of did that in a way that porn is bad because it includes all of that stuff and and go and get treated for it. I I met a woman recently actually who works in the East End of London and she she works in a clinic that deals with uh, people with HIV and it's primarily migrants and uh, a lot of the people that she works with are women. And... She was saying that um, – because I was talking to her about how like HIV is very treatable now, right? And she said, yes, but the drug companies, they know essentially and, – and this was confirmed as well by an, another global health worker who I met recently who was talking about how the problem that they're facing now as health practitioners in getting people to take medication for HIV is not that they, – they, we know that we can essentially keep someone alive – for the a, a standard lifespan, taking HIV meds, um, the problem is getting people to actually take them. It's the access, but also in America now, this, this woman was telling me, all of the patents on the drugs have ended, and so you can get them at generic prices. And so the people who make the drugs are like, well, we need to pretend that we need to somehow make people think that this new drug that we've made is a better drug to treat or prevent HIV um, so that we can keep the, we can keep putting new patents on and keep charging more and more money for it. Um, and then people th- might think, well, I can't afford that or, you know, they might have other access issues like um, there's still obviously a lot of shame in seeking treatment and I, I just thought that was really interesting because I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, I didn't know that the patents were off and I didn't know that it was it's very affordable to treat now but, of course, Big Pharma. I'm pro-vaccine, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, just very quickly on a more macro level as well, that idea of shame, because during the HIV-AIDS crisis, I mean, you saw other countries basically uh, stomp down on the at-risk kind of populations. So sex workers, intravenous drug users and gay men, they kind of like crushed those populations and marginalised them more. Here in Australia, it was such a different story and I don't think enough of us know this story, how the then Labor government actually reached across the aisle in a very, very canny way and said we need to work together on this because if we don't engage with sex workers, gay men and intravenous drug users, this thing is going to blow up. And so it was kind of the opposite of a national shame in a way. What we did was quite different and uh, by actually saying we're not going to criminalise these activities further, we're not going to, in fact, we're going to open uh, safe injecting houses, we're going to go into gay sex venues, we're going to engage with sex workers directly, that actually meant that HIV AIDS in this country was nothing like anywhere else in the world to the point where when you go to other countries now who work in HIV AIDS, they talk about the Australian model. They talk about the Australian model as the gold standard of treating HIV AIDS within a social context and that's the opposite of what shame can do. And, and what that did was, uh, what that strategy did was it saw us as peer educators. It saw gay men. It trusted us. Exactly, yep. And it, and it used our practice wisdom um, to, to do something that actually could reach the whole community. You know, when you look at those yeah. populations, they, they really have penetration, for lack of a better word, into the general populace. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, the, the unfortunate thing now about our strategy is that, that it left a lot of people behind. And right now, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rates of HIV transmission are up, 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 up. You know, we have a, we have a lot more work to do on this topic in Australia. Mm. So on that light note, <laughs> uh, 
I might just, I might just, uh, my final question to you uh, regarding the high, high visibility of everyone else's sex life when we are all existing on social media and we can write to Ben and his mum and tell them all our weird pervy stories. Uh, there, there is, I, I feel there's, there's a real opportunity to make comparisons between our own sex lives and, and the sex lives of others. Um, so I'm curious for each of you, who out there is having better sex than you? <laughs> Quinn, obviously. <laughs> Nobody's having better sex than me. <laughs> It's really true. I found a fuck genius and I'm in love with them and they're in love with me and uh, we have a mighty good time. In fact, the way I prepared for the panel was to have sex. It's really good. Oh, yeah, that's what you meant when I was... I'm sharing a flat with Quinn and, and, and actually they were like, yep, we're just going to... And, and then we'll go over it. And now I realise what that was. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. No, they're just washing their hands. No, it wasn't... Yeah. <laughs> ben, who's Obviously, having better sex than you? Um, I know, like, when you, when you say... The, the, the premise itself is worth interrogating. Please right? do. Because the idea that we present uh, all of ourselves online, um, um, you know, we curate ourselves, uh, and, and Instagram is the place of, like, you know, incredible bodies and impl- implied just-had sex, unless you're... Um, Lisa Oldfield from the Real Housewives of Sydney, whose partner was David Oldfield, and she she posted that. Yeah, she knows what I'm talking about, and she posted because David Oldfield was, you know, that co-founder of one. He's ben a, and te- I are a in a despicable man. Of anyway, <laughs> his former partner Lisa Oldfield posted this post-sex selfie where everyone's like, "Oh no!" But they wanted us to think that they were having better sex. They're not together anymore. So, um. Uh, so, look, I don't have an answer to your question. I just wanted to put the mental image of David Oldfield having sex in all of That's, your minds because it's like the curse in the ring, right? You've got to pass it on. Let's all thank Ben for that. Amy? I, I don't actually think much about my, my own sex life and, and compare it with other people, but a few years ago I probably would have said Angelina Jolie because I have a huge girl crush on her, but I don't know if she's having much sex lately because she's, yeah. So maybe I'm having better sex than her now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for revealing your perverse minds Wait, to who's myself and you. sex than you, Gala? Quinn. <laughs> no brainer. Actually, my clients are having better sex than me. S- Please join me in thanking Benjamin Law, <laughs> Quinn Eads, <laughs> Amy Bed, <laughs> and Clementine Ford. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.